The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, episode 191. One day, I shall come back. That's it. I've been renewed. As when a Time Lord's body wears out, he regenerates. I'm a Time Lord. I'm not a human being. I walk in eternity. Braveheart, Change, my dear. And it seems on a moment too soon. Unlimited vice pudding! Position was wearing a bit thin. Fantastic. Allons-y! I am Scottish. I can complain about things. Ta-da! She'll be fine. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about that hit BBC series, Doctor Who. And today we're discussing the big Finnish audio story, Storm Warning, featuring the Eighth Doctor. Joining me today on the panel are Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going? Very well, thanks. And Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Uh, folks, remember to like The Secrets of Doctor Who on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Secrets of Doctor Who. And you can be sure to retweet our episodes on Twitter, where we're at SQPN. And please uh, leave comments and engage with us on social media. We love to have conversations with you and connect with you there. Uh, so check us out. Uh, so as I said, we're we're discussing the Big Finish audio story, Storm Warning. Jimmy, could you give a very quick reminder to folks who may be new? What Big Finish is? Yeah, so Big Finish is a company in Britain that produces audio plays, at least primarily. That's what they're known for. They got their start kind of in the era after Doctor Who was off the air, and they they began as kind of one of a number of fan productions that would try to keep Doctor Who materials being produced during the long dark. Um, between Sylvester McCoy's last episode in 1989 and Christopher Eccleston's first episode in 2005. There were a bunch of fan efforts to try to, you know, keep the flame alive. Some of them involved actors from the show, but they couldn't call them the Doctor because they didn't have the license. So, like, Colin Baker became the stranger and his companion was Miss Brown, but it was clearly meant to be the Doctor and Perry. Right. But Big Finish got a license, and so, eventually, and so they they started producing authentic new Doctor Who stories, and they also featured actors from the show, and so in 1996, Paul McGann had had the pilot TV movie Doctor Who that he did, so he became the eighth Doctor. But they didn't continue that in video form until, you know, a couple of decades later when he got, or almost a couple couple decades later, when he did like an eight-minute Night of the Doctor video. But he did do and went on to become one of the most popular Doctors on Big Finish. And his audio adventures are numerous for Big Finish. The one we're talking about today, Storm Warning, is the very first one he did. This is his return to the role of the Doctor after the TV movie. 
And his big finish stuff became so popular that in Night of the Doctor, where he actually returns to film as the Doctor, he name checks companions as he's about to regenerate. Like a lot of Doctors, he thinks about his companions, and he names a big finish companion. So in that monologue, he, a physician heal thyself monologue he gives, he names Charlie, who is mm. the first one we'll meet in this episode. He also names others like Kariz and so forth. And I should point out that this was released, it's almost said aired, but it was released in January of 2001. So it was about five, four and a half, five years after the movie, the, the Fox American movie was made. And four years before the new show. Right. And we're doing this. We're, go we're going to now be doing regularly doing Eighth Doctor Big Finish audio productions because, as you said, Jimmy, there's so many of them. And he is an official doctor. He's listed in the official canon, as such as it is, as the Eighth Doctor. And so these are these are real, you know, as much as anything is real stories. And, you know, we're going through each of the doctors, the first through 13th Doctors, on a rotating basis. And uh, we thought, you know, we should be doing more of the Eighth Doctor. These are good stories. As, you, as you've heard, we did Chimes of Midnight at Christmas time uh, of 2019. And as you'll hear from this one, these are good, fun stories. Yeah. Wouldn't be Christmas without Mrs. Baddeley's Plum Pudding. <laughs> That's right. Well, it's good, good to get some exposure to these stories because, you know, I'm coming in, I think, like Dom, really have not heard any of the Big Finish stuff until now, you know, that this yes. is the first we've really heard of it. I'd heard of Big Finish because it has been around for a while, you know, kind of funny to think about it, 20 years plus, yep. you know, but it's uh, something that I, I think a lot of Doctor Who fans maybe don't have exposure to because they only have the TV stuff at most that they're familiar with. And it's so, it's unique because a lot of other fandoms don't have this sort of thing. They don't have the audio plays by the actors who right. who were who you know did the roles uh you know you don't have it for Star Wars or Star Trek or anything like that uh, so this is a great thing that Doctor Who has that other right. so other things don't have you know it's it's fun too because the fact is you know in many cases a lot of like the old style radio dramas died off yeah but yet there's still things like this available where they're not audiobooks these aren't audiobooks these are radio audio plays. dramas they are audio yeah. plays you know, they are the like the old style radio dramas where, you know, you hear a gun like in this one, you hear a gunshot off. Oh, he killed another dead alien. You know, just make it clear. He shot yeah. him and killed him. You can't you, know, yeah. you can't portray that visually. So you have to make sure to tell the story to show that, yes, this alien is now dead. And there are some neat tricks that old time radio would use. I'm something of a fan of old time radio. And I As once I. I once attended a, con a panel at a sci fi convention called. Wait, what are you doing with that gun? Which, right. <laughs> which, which was devoted to the problems of audio storytelling. Also, another difference with other fandoms is the fan productions in other fandoms tend to not be high quality, if mm. I can put it delicately. But Big Finish basically became professional. I mean, yeah, their yeah. early productions were shaky, but they are professional today, and they crank out good audio stories, like well, in, Live right. 34, which we did. Yes. Yes. Well, yep. and one advantage, of course, of doing audio is the barrier to entry is much, much lower, as we know as podcasters. It's much right. easier to produce just good audio than it is to produce both good audio and good video and good special yep. effects and, and, and. 
Yeah. And you could do uh, so much more with audio that you that you could never produce on screen without millions of dollars. Yep. All right. So let's let's get into this uh story. Uh the, it it surrounds a uh, events on an airship, a British airship in 19 October 1930, the R101. Was this a a real yes uh, incident. Okay, so this is essentially like Britain's Hindenburg disaster. Yes, uh, and if you want to talk about it, basically what it is. Americans don't know about R one hundred and one in the main, but this is basically the British equivalent of the Hindenburg. Yes, right. And so it starts with. So it doesn't start. Um, well, it starts with the Doctor on the TARDIS, basically uh, the Eighth Doctor uh, looking for the TARDIS manual, which is fun because you know that comes up once in a while in the show. And he finds an Agatha Christie novel. Then he finds Mary Shelley's writing about the night with uh, Lord Byron that we just saw in the 13th Doctor's uh, yep. story, the, the Lone Cyberman. Yeah. And I should mention here, so he, it's a, he's got like a signed copy of Frankenstein or something. And he, mm-hmm. and he talks about that night and he says, oh, Mary, if you could have only told what, if you could have only told the real story. <laughs> implying that the doctor has been there before and big finish will eventually show us that one of the things ah. they had in in the 1996 movie were, were all these frankenstein illusions where mm-hmm. the doctor who is a kind of byronic character you know he's he he, right. he looks like a character from that era and he has this kind of romantic flair and so forth and then he 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 like regenerates and comes to life in a lightning storm and it's very frankenstein like and it's very conscious on their part well it made sense then to insert paul mcgann's eighth doctor into the events of that night and even though this is the first time that he's returned to the role so we haven't heard it yet they will go back and tell us the eighth doctor version of those events and Mary Shelley becomes a traveling companion for a few oh, adventures. Yeah. And as you would expect, gets ideas for future stories based on those adventures. Yes. But, uh, but we will see that. And then, of course, most recently, they've revisited those same events on TV with the 13th Doctor. And in Doctor Who, everything gets to be canonical because time war changed everything. Yep. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So uh, while he's looking for the manual, they, he encounters a, a time ship caught in a space-time glitch, uh, and it's it's I guess it's dying over and over, like it's caught in this loop, uh, a la Star Trek, uh, mm-hmm. and and he ends up using the TARDIS to nudge it out of the time glip, glitch, and he gets stuck. Uh, and then there are these vortosaurs, which are like time vultures uh, that and look they like break- dinosaurs. Right, right. And they break into the TARDIS. They actually are able to get into the TARDIS, which is unusual. Mm-hmm. Uh, we never, like, the, that time ship is sort of a MacGuffin. We never, it never comes back, does it? No, I like the way he says, because it's caught in this, crashing in this paradox, he says, what a horrible way to never die. Yeah. <laughs> and if he doesn't nudge it forward, they'll just keep dying. And so he's going to try to nudge it forward so they can finally all die and rest in peace. And we don't get closure on that. My guess, not in this story anyway, my guess, my headcanon for now is that it's actually the TARDIS that oh. he just doesn't realize that he is caught in this and he nudges it forward, but they don't. Okay. That's open to interpretation. I do like the right. vortosaurs, though, that are like, that are, you know, creatures that live in the vortex. They're apparently kind of like pterodactyls. And at mm-hmm. first I thought, oh, they're like the reapers in the, yep. in the ninth 
Dr. Story Father's Day. They're going after paradoxes. Yep. But it appears that that's not the case. They go after other things. The Vortisaur that we end up with, there's one Vortisaur that ends up sticking around, and mm-hmm. he actually becomes a sort of traveling companion creature with the Doctor and Charlie for several adventures. <laughs> he's uh, like a, a pet. pet. It's yeah. like a, he's like a t- sci-fi pet, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then we we switch to a radio broadcast about the uh, uh, His Majesty's airship R101 on its maiden flight in 1930, heading to India, voiced by Mark Gaddis. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mike Mark Gaddis. That makes sense because Mark Gaddis was involved in the creation of Big Finish. I guess right. Yes. He was one of the principals. Well, he was. Um, he worked on quite a bit of. I believe some of the earlier stuff. So okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we have uh, a Lord Tamworth and a L- Lieutenant Colonel Frayling. Uh, Frayling is the designer of the airship, and Tamworth, I think, is the Civil Aviation Authority head or something like yeah. that. And, and these uh, these characters are all fictional. So R one hundred one crash is real, but the characters they use on the on in the story are all fiction, ba- based off it, real people who were involved yeah. in the actual R one hundred one. Yeah, it wouldn't really be appropriate to use the people who died in the crash and so tragically and use them as characters in the CIA. So I get that. Yeah. Uh, Frailing and Tamworth have this discussion about uh, modifications that Tamworth made to the airship without Frailing's knowledge. And it's something important to think about with airships, early airships, is as lighter than aircraft, every ounce counted. And mm-hmm. they made the, these things like every, the, the chairs were made out of specifically light wood. You know, everything was was chosen for its how light it was. And uh, and so the idea that Tamworth would make modifications that added half a ton of weight to the airship is significant. And so apparently Tamworth is running some sort of secret mission with a secret cargo that Frailing was unaware of. And that's that becomes clear up front. Uh, by the way, Frailing is played by or voiced by Nicholas Pegg, mm-hmm. who often voices Daleks mm-hmm. in the TV show. So... And Lord was, Tamworth is voiced by Gareth Thomas, if I'm saying that right, who was Blake of Blake 7. Oh. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. We've had a lot of Blake 7 and uh, Doctor Who lately where, that we've discussed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Tamworth is concerned with a passenger in cabin 43. That's a, the, we, we, that comes up. Uh, not 42 or 47, which are both significant numbers, but 43. Uh, meanwhile, so the, on the TARDIS, the doctors have succeeded in pushing this timeship out, and he gets stuck. Then we're back to the airship, where we meet Charlotte Pollard, or as we'll come to know her, Charlie. Uh, she's uh, writing down her uh, some memoir about her trip, and it turns out she's pretending to be a boy on the crew, a, a steward, uh, and she's dressed up as a boy. Uh, she's stowed away. And this is sort of a trope in... Uh... British literature of a certain age where you have women passing as men. I mean, it's all over Shakespeare. You know, right. happens happens all the time there. And I've seen references to it like happening in later time periods like the 1700s, the 1800s. And so I don't know, maybe this was a thing. I've never really verified this, but um but Charlie really wants to be an adventuress. I mean, she even describes herself in her journal as an Edwardian adventuress. <laughs> right. An adventuress had a double meaning, which wasn't always on the uh, strictly up and up, but Charlie uh-huh. seems to be the more innocent kind of adventuress. <laughs> okay, good. 
And so this is a way to do that, to be free of the constraints of, because she's from the upper class, to be free from the expectations of being an upper class lady is to go out disguised as a lower class man. Well, I'm, I'm guessing she, too that they only had stewards, not stewardesses to use the antiquated yes. term. So the All only the way she could have... Yeah, so right. the only way she could have gotten onto the uh, onto the ship was to dress up as a, a young boy instead of a woman. And you know, uh, I guess she's she's got to be like late teens. I think. I mean, like she's she's young. She's yeah. like maybe nineteen, twenties at most, or you know, somewhere around there. And she reminds me a lot. It's both in this one and in the one we've listened to before, *Gems of Midnight*. She reminds me a lot of Ace. Yeah. Although mm-hmm. uh, uh, more of, upper of, class. of an upper class. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, sort of the, the, the spirit of Ace in her. So that, that, I, I do enjoy her so far. What she and Ace have in common is a great deal of self-confidence. Yep. It's yes. like she will, yes. she will just roll with stuff. But she does have upper-class attitudes. She's not as wounded as Ace. And mm-hmm. she doesn't blow things up the way Ace does. <laughs> but true. in terms of self-confidence, <laughs> she's got that in spades. And, and kind of an awareness, too, of what's going on. You know, she kinda, She's able to kind of look and see what's you know, figure things out because she kind of figured the doctor out fairly quickly, actually. Yeah. You know, that, okay, there's something more to you than what you're, you're showing us. Like the best companion, she rolls with it. She's, she, mm-hmm. she accepts the, the impossible and the, and the crazy and goes with it and embraces it. <laughs> so the yeah. TARDIS arrives on the airship in the, in the ballast tank of the airship. And, uh, which is, uh, bad because that ballast tank is supposed to be empty and throws off the balance of the ship. So as the doctor climbs up into the ship's main body, the big open space of the ship itself, the hatch closes behind them, and they flush out the TARDIS. So we have TARDIS mm-hmm. separation here. The TARDIS is ejected from the ship somewhere over France at this point. And so, uh, so, the, so that is a, a major plot point here. Frailing, meanwhile, says uh, that there's a storm coming. So we have the storm warning of the title. And the storm that eventually in real life, is what which takes down the R-101. It, it crashes in the storm. Yep. Charlie is unmasked as a uh, stowaway uh, fairly quickly, and then and takes off and runs away uh, while they're trying to uh, restrain her. And apparently she is impersonating a real, a real steward. Right, That yes. she apparently got drunk and, I don't know, bashed on the head or something and took his place. <laughs> or probably just got him completely blitzed and he passed out and she snuck out before he <laughs> yeah. could recover. Right, right. Uh, the doctor, meanwhile, has made his way to cabin 43 and listens to hear what's going on inside. And it sounds like someone is gagged or restrained and being injected with something he hears. And that's when Charlie comes around the corner and literally runs into the doctor. And then we have a, a storm has come on and Frailing, looking out a window, sees something on the outside of the ship, which is uh, Shades of Twilight's on the movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and William yeah. Shatner seeing the thing on the, on the uh, wing. Or was that the original, actually, the original Twilight Zone? It's the and, original uh, Twilight Zone. Yep. That's right. That's right. And uh, we have, uh, it's, it's a, one of the Vortisaurs, which apparently came through the time vortex with, uh, with the TARDIS. And it's on the outside of the R101, which is a big gas bag. And the Vortisaur has talons, which, you know, those don't mix. But, yeah. <laughs> so the Doctor figures out that he's on the R101. And as the Doctor always does, he knows all of, all of history. And he knows uh, it's October 1930. And that the ship will crash in France early the next morning in a storm with no survivor, uh, which now sets up our event. And that's actually not what happened in our timeline. There were like eight survivors 
but two of them died from injuries, so there ended up being yeah. six survivors. But mm. it, that would complicate our plot and undo the paradox mm-hmm. the Doctor right. is going to have at the end of the episode. So in this version of the timeline, it has to be no survivors. Yeah, right. that's interesting thing, though, is because it was a, a, you know, everybody th- remembers, you know, the, the, the foot or has seen the footage of the Hindenburg crash. I mean, it was just horrific. This was actually, it sounded like a, a fairly gentle landing, but there was so much damage to the ship that it yeah. immediately burst on fire as soon as it landed. Right, right. Uh, in fact, there were people who survived the Hindenburg even, too, which is mm-hmm. interesting. So the uh, the Vortosaur end- ends up crashing through Cabin 43's window and attacks Tamworth's valet, the, the South African uh, Mr. Rathbone, who is uh, very sinister throughout this, uh, who seems to have his own agenda throughout the story, although he, he supposedly works for Tamworth. And uh, so it crashes through, it attacks him, and the, the uh, doctor comes in to save the day. He says at one point, oh, we used to ride Vortosaurs bareback in the Time Lord Academy. Playing Quidditch, no doubt. Yep. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. Right. Uh, but also, hang a lantern on that. We'll be, Chekhov's Vortosaur will be com- coming back in the fourth act. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the person that he'd heard it was being restrained in the, in the cabin is in a deep-sea diver's suit. So being very fed strange. with oxygen through tubes. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Now the uh, the doctor and the uh, the, the Vortosaur, you know uh, uh, attacks Rathbone and then runs off and so the doctor and the chief steward named Weeks they go hunting the Vortosaur leaving Charlie behind with Rathbone oh. and uh, and uh, this person apparently the Vortosaur doesn't like coffee it wasn't that <laughs> right. it was hot it was it did like the bitterness of the coffee right right so Frailing now is concerned that the airship is damaged and needs to land but uh, Tamworth is you know, no, no, we must go on, you know, so we have this drive to go on, we must continue. The doctor recognizes Tamworth's name from the history books, and it's because he encounters Tamworth and Frailing, and we have this whole, another trope from that Doctor Who often has, which is the um, misidentification of the doctor, who he really mm-hmm. is, and Tamworth thinks he's an, a, a German spy for the Zeppelin. <laughs> this is a fun one, yeah. Yes. yes. Uh, he calls himself Johann Schmidt instead of John Smith. Mm-hmm. And because he's not British, they're going to hand him over to authorities once they land instead of executing him on the spot. Right. So he'll be handed over to authorities and then killed. They would have had to kill him on the spot if he was just a British stowaway. Yep. So, <laughs> <Right>. so, <laughs> so the doctor is going to communicate to Charlie. It's like, we've been caught, Charlie. We may as well give it up now that they found out we're German spies, right? Wink, wink, wink. Yeah. <laughs> I also like how I, I think it's Tamworth compliments. So they, they think he's a spy for the Zeppelin company. And that's yeah. why he's here is to scope out the competition of, you know, with the R101 as a rival to the, the Hindenburg, which is on the drawing boards, but hasn't been made yet. Right. And they compliment the doctor's English is uh, your English is really good, though not quite good enough to pass muster. <laughs> which which is funny and 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 so the doctor then starts introducing deliberate mistakes into his english oh, yeah. where he says well i yeah. i have uh what you say a pigeon of english oh a smidgen of english yeah <laughs> right <laughs> so uh in they they're all very civilized as they always would be in an edwardian uh, british situation like this as as they're threatening his life it's very civilized and uh Tamworth reveals that they're they're due to ascend to five thousand feet for a rendezvous, which is interesting. 
which is twice or three times, they don't, they're not really clear on it, the ship's rated altitude. So uh, Frayling is really concerned at this point. So the Doctor and Tamarith go to visit the passenger, who's in distress due to the altitude, uh, for some reason. Uh, and then they, they I've take been on the, an unpressurized plane, yeah, I know what that's yeah. like. Mm. <laughs> right. Uh, they take the helmet off at at this point, and uh, they, as they describe it, you know, sort of these big eyes, gray skin. I'm thinking, is it a gray? Is it an alien like the 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 Area 51 Roswell gray? They don't settle that. They don't call it a gray, which they wouldn't have that term for it anyway. Yeah, I was listening as well. They establish it has super smooth skin, like a dolphin, and even though it's apparently a female. Rathbone refers to the, and we'll meet more of these aliens mm-hmm. later, but Rathbone refers to them as little gray men. So right. I think we're yep. meant to imagine that, the, that it's a classical gray, just like we saw in the animated Doctor Who adventure. Yep. That's right. That's right. These, it's, it's, there's, there's similarities between the, the, that and uh, this, this uh, story. As the airship reaches its rendezvous altitude, it becomes clear they're rendezvousing with a flying saucer. A, a giant flying saucer arrives. I mean, this is big enough to contain the airship within it. And we find out the alien is is called the uh, the Engineer Prime or Prime Engineer. They do a Yoda reversal of names mm-hmm. of the Triskelli, they call themselves. Mm-hmm. The R101 passes through the hull of the flying saucer to go inside, and they have constructed a... Uh, landing bay. A landing bay. Yeah, there's a... A landing mast, Mo- they call mooring, it. Mooring tower. Mooring tower, right, right, mm-hmm. right. It's very interesting. We have a bit of the Time Lord triumphant feel to the Doctor at this point. He gives this speech about, do you recognize that feeling inside, that stepping into adventure and trespassing into the unknown? Mm-hmm. And, and then it echoes, unknown, unknown, unknown. I mean, there's that really like that um, sort of feeling you get when, when it's, uh, whether it's a tenant or... Matt Smith kind of doing that Time Lord triumphant sort of thing. I just thought that it was funny. At least he doesn't go Time Lord victorious and want to bend the laws of time. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Right, right. Although he does, spoiler, end up doing that. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) kind of unintentionally. Yep. So uh, Tamworth wants to take, you know, a bunch of people into this meeting that he's going to have with the aliens, but uh, the aliens will only allow a delegation of three onto their ship for very specific reasons and insist that it must be Tamworth, Frailing, and the Doctor. So they, you know, it's very interesting that they ask for the doctor, but Tamworth is, is okay to go with it. He wants this meeting. By the way, one thing that went by pretty quickly that we should mention, because it'll be important later, even though it's not really important in this story. In talking to Charlie, the doctor learns where she's going. She's not just right. aimlessly adventuring. She has mm-hmm. a specific place she wants to get to by a specific time. She knew a guy named Alex Grail who told her something like, oh, you haven't lived until you've had a Singapore sling on the terrace of the Singapore Hilton. And so she, a Singapore sling is a drink. It's gin sling. It actually sounds like an interesting drink. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, Yeah, I've never known what the ingredients are, but I've heard of it. In any event, she wants to get to Singapore so she can have a Singapore sling on the terrace of the Singapore Hilton on New Year's Eve, December 31st, 1930. So that's her goal. It's kind of ambiguous. Is she going to meet Grail there herself or not? But that's going to be a running thread in Charlie's future story. Okay. She and Alex Grail and getting to Singapore in time. Okay. So at this point, 
we we do also get revealed that neither Tamworth nor the Doctor trust Rathbone, who is being left behind and, and doesn't like it. Hmm. There's uh, elements of him they don't trust. Uh, the the interior of the spaceship is described as being so vast that they can't see to either end. So this is one massive uh, flying saucer. Tamworth says, uh, it then explains what's going on. The previous year, he was notified of a UFO crash in the UK. When he got there, it was dissolving. The, the ship was dissolving, and all that was left was the Engineer Prime. At first, they couldn't communicate with him until one night, Rathbone showed up out of nowhere, and I thought that was very interesting. And Rathbone took them to a spiritualist medium named Madame Zelda, who was able to get the Engineer Prime to start communicating. And uh, Engineer Prime says, oh, I didn't talk earlier, and they kind of, they they imply, or even outright say, that they basically tortured the alien to get mm-hmm. him to talk, or her, to talk. And she says she didn't talk earlier because Zelda was the first creator she'd spoken to, which is interesting. So we, she starts to kind of refer to different kinds of people, and that's important. Yeah, previously she had only had contact with uncreators, and now she right. knew by meeting this medium who is the real thing, that that our planet also contains higher orders besides just uncreators. Right, right. And basically, you figure out from context, an uncreator is like a military person, like the well, military Someone people. violent. Yeah. Someone, yeah. someone who destroys instead of creates. Yeah. Right. Speak, speaking of violent, <laughs> Rathbone yeah. reveals to Charlie that he's got this arsenal of weapons on the airship, this is where the uh, half ton of extra weight came from. Uh, machine guns and grenades and all kinds of things. Half a ton of weapons. That's a pretty good arsenal. <laughs> yes. Uh, it turns out that um, the Triskelli, we used to be conquerors, feared throughout the universe, as we always are. They have a three-part symbol that, that represents them, and they find one on the floor that the Doctor and Tamworth or Frailing are told to stand on in the, in the three parts, and then they're transported to another part of the, sh- uh, the ship. Notice their name also Triskelly, so that for it's got a Wrong. three there. The right. try. Are they gamesters at all? Do you think? Gamesters uh, I of think Triskelion? they probably like games. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, ten thousand quatlos on that guy uh, on the doctor. Uh, so, uh, so the Triskelly are a, a, they're a people that are divided into three parts. The first is the the rational creators, and that includes the engineers, like Engineer Prime. Then there are the uncreators who embody the dark side, the destroyers, the the all instinct aspects of the Triskelly personality, and they're looking for human uncreators to go up against to to match themselves against, uh, and they they reject Tamworth because he while he used to be a soldier, the prime, that's Engineer Prime brought Tamworth because he used to be a soldier serving in the army. He's not really. Uh, violent or aggressive at this point. He's not an uncreator anymore, and it's implied because of what he saw at the Battle of Jericho, which was Mm. a battle in World War I. It occurred in 1918, and Lord Tamworth apparently was horrified by the carnage he saw there, and it turned him off uh, turned him off the violence. So he's no longer an uncreator, but they brought him here because they think he is. Yes. And the uncreators have sensed Rathbone telepathically, and they think he's the one who's the real uncreator among everyone else, and turns out he is. Uh, and so they, they, they said, you should have brought him instead. And the doctor here, I think it's here where the doctor makes a reference to the Battle of Rourke's Drift, which is uh, a battle that happened in, uh, in South Africa, Africa mm-hmm. yeah, yep. uh, between the British and uh, 
Zulus. Zulu tribes, which was a, a fascinating story. Which I wonder if they ever did that in Doctor Who, the, the Doctor shows up there. But it's a fascinating well, he, I mean, he story. obviously does one of these, well, not how I remember it. Yeah. Or at least as I remember it, so that he was there. But whether or not they actually told that story is another story. Yep. Uh, and then the third group of Triskelli consists of a single person, uh, the lawgiver, and there's only one of him. The, the lawgiver is the conscience and free will of the Triskelli. And what and they did was they paired up with each of the humans, so Frailing and the engineers, Tamarith and the creators, and the doctor and the lawgiver. They've sent something about the doctor. Yeah, and it's the lawgiver's job to decide between whether the the creators or the uncreators are going to have their way. So in a way, this is kind of like Freud's id, ego, and superego, mm-hmm. yeah. where, where you have the ego having to integrate the impulses from the id and the superego. Right, right. Uh, yeah, and, the, and that's what the lawgiver says. They used to be integrated. They used to be, we all had all, you know, all three aspects of our personality, but we consumed ourselves and we separated the remainder into three parts. And, and the lawgiver cannot have children, so therefore the lawgiver is ancient and is dying, and they're looking for a new lawgiver. So you you can guess who's that going to be, and then <laughs> yeah. fortunately they very quickly dismissed the doctor because they wanted a human lawgiver, not an yep. alien. And the doctor's right. like, "Oh well, that's a relief." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, the doctor has to reveal that he is in fact an alien too. Now Rathbone is acting on separate orders from Tamworth, his own secret orders. He needs to, he's going to attack the aliens and demand they provide. Uh, a reward of their t- of their uh, technology for saving the engineer prime basically or turning him uh they have to they, they want to have their technology if they don't give it willingly which it just seems like a bad idea I mean, they're so advanced technologically you don't think that maybe they might be a little stronger than you are to, you know with <laughs> arms and whatever but well, okay this is- this this is I, I think where the story gets a little weak but not not the idea of the attack but he has exactly half an hour to get this agreement or and right. that was just, and obviously it's to make the story short and, you know, this is all happening within the course of an evening or a night, but still it's just, that's where it's kind of like, okay, exactly a half an hour to convince these aliens, turn over your spaceship so that we can, you know, conquer the world basically. Yeah. In, right. in real life, it would be like, I've only got six months until the negotiations yeah. need to be complete or. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. So the, as we said, the engineers had been sent to earth to find a new lawgiver and because they nominated the doctor and his and he's not human, their nomination is invalid. So that gives the uncreators the upper hand in their mm-hmm. society at this point. And meanwhile, Rathbone is rejecting Tamworth's authority. Tamworth is trying to get him to stop the attack. And Rathbone rejects it, his authority, says, I've got my own orders. And he ends up shooting the lawgiver when he refuses to hand over the ship, not knowing that now that the law is dead, literally, the uncreators have been unleashed. They can do whatever yeah. they want. And it turns out this is what the uncreators wanted all along. They were hoping for this result. They were basically controlling Rathbone and, and getting him to do their will. Yeah. Right. They manipulated this. It was explained that the uncreators wanted to kill the lawgiver and everybody else. Right. Because that's, that's what they do. They're uncreators. So the airship crew has been armed and they start shooting at the uncreators. And, but it turns out that the uncreators are not all that great of soldiers because when the humans yell at them, they cower in fear. Like they're they're not doing so well here, uh, and they've been they've been chained for so long that they don't recognize other predators. I think that's what the doctor says. Yep. And so the 
the doctor tells the engineer Prime to yell at the uncreators to let them know that he's mad as hell and he's not going to take it anymore, which is a, <laughs> a reference to uh, Network. Oh, what was the, Network, the movie Network, right. Uh, so uh, uncreator Prime starts shooting back, but Tamworth steps up and declares his candidacy as lawgiver Prime. Uh, and then we get a boxing match, basically. Yeah. Tamworth, who's got some background in boxing, is uh, challenges him to a boxing match, one on one, mano a mano, uh, the fight of the century. And and here we get another classic reference, only this time in the mouth of Uncreator Prime, because Tamworth refers to the art of boxing. Yep. Yes. Uncreator Prime says, "I do not know about art of man, but I know what I like." And slugs. Yep. Him. <laughs> yes. Right. <laughs> And so uh, from the classic Tamworth quote, does, I don't know about yep. art, but I know what I like. Yep. Exactly. Yes. Right. Right. Tamworth ends up with the upper hand. He gets, uh, but Uncreator Prime takes control of Rathbone, uh, like telepathic control, and gets him to shoot Tamworth. Uh, but it, you know, tries to get him to shoot him, but instead Rathbone shoots the Uncreator Prime. So now Tamworth is in charge. He's in charge of the Triskelly, but he says, "I'm not the lawgiver. I only stay as an as, as an advisor." And you all must become self-determining. Uh, and, so, and here we have a kind of, uh, you know, he he does the right thing, but without the proper character set up. Because right. as an imperialist, he should take the saucer and impose the British Empire on you know the world, <laughs> right. or at least sizable chunks of it. And he doesn't. He decides that the uh, Triskelli are better off out of human affairs, mm -hmm. and so he'll take them away to the stars. And as an old man, he's not going to live very long, but he will give them some advice before he dies. But he like has a, I guess, a literary heel face turn away right. from being a British imperialist. Well, and he even even says, you know, they offered me anything if I brought the saucer back, and I really should do this, but. And the doctor kind of, I forget if it's here or later, he kind of talks about why it would be really bad for for humanity for the the British Empire to get this technology at this point, and in how it would change Britain in the future to be, mm -hmm. I mean, essentially he kind of predicts that Britain would end up being like the Nazis, like if they had the such total control and overwhelming uh, ability, uh, overwhelming f uh, use of force that they could, yep. uh, that they would end up being tyrants in, of the world. So, uh, which is an interesting uh, thought experiment there. But if you look at the history of the British Empire, that's what happened when they did have the overwhelming, especially naval technology of the time. Yeah. And were tyrants. Well, uh, naval and military. They weren't Nazis. Right. They weren't Nazis, but they were. The tyrants uh, of the time. I mean, I mean, let, they, let's let's be yeah. honest. The British Empire was not the most uh, gentle in some places. Sure, sure, yes, in Africa and in uh, in well, India, yeah. India. And Things going back were, historically, nobody's ancestors were the most gentle. I know all the time. that. I know that. But <laughs> yeah, no, no empire ever was built without a lot of uh, bloodshed and uh, pain on the behalf of those conquered. That's for sure. Uh, but but uh, I think the doctor's kind of warning. It would be like with this technology, it would be the worst ever. You know, I, I think mm -hmm. that's uh, probably reasonable to say. And so the the doctor, meanwhile, promises Tamworth that he's going to save the R101, which is an interesting promise given the history. Well, that he's he's going to try to. Right. 
He says, I'll Which do what is- I can. I took that as meaning, yeah, I'd like to, but don't count on it, bud. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that, okay. That's, that's probably what, what he, because the doctor is always, you know, from a certain point of view, uh, sort of <laughs> way of talking about things. So they're back on the airship. Uh, the, the, the chief steward is sent to uh, feed the vertosaur, but it, the vortosaur, but it ends up attacking him. The doctor finds out that Rathbone, meanwhile, back on the ship, has stolen the uncreator's Triskelion weapon. It's a, so it's a shape. It's in the shape of the symbol of the, yep. the Triskelly, but it's sort of like a laser gun sort of yeah. thing. It, it, it's essentially. Also, there's there's a moment in here where the doctor is trying to get Charlie off the ship. He's sensed mm-hmm. something about her that you don't really belong here. Yeah. And he's he's trying to get her to leave because, actually, first, he encourages her to stay on the saucer. Right. It's like, you don't have to go back to the ship. You can stay on the saucer and go explore the cosmos and everything like that, which she's clearly interested in doing. Mm-hmm. And she's like, nope, I'm, I'm, I'm heading to Singapore. And I, even though she's already been told the R101 is going to crash, she says, we don't have to be on it. Parachutes, I saw them. Yeah. Right. So she is going to go back to the R101 and jump off it with a parachute and take the doctor with her, and they can continue their adventures in her mind. And, uh, and meanwhile, the doctor has to uh, get this weapon from Rathbone, because, again, if he contaminates history with this weapon takes it back to britain as he's trying to do uh that will cause major historical disruptions also frailing now frailing has had a bit of a character arc he's the designer you'll remember mm-hmm. and yes. he was very meek and always being put upon by tamworth and and he's been the voice of reason this whole time he's very cautious but during the confrontation with the uncreators the doctor encouraged him to get in touch with his inner savage and roar at them <laughs> right. and and he has <laughs> He has had a face heel turn, so yep. now he is. And and I should probably explain what that language is since I've used it twice. It's from wrestling. Yep. There are two kinds of wrestlers: heels, which are villains, and baby faces, which are the good guys. And so, in American wrestling, and this is the wrestling for entertainment as opposed to the mm-hmm. serious sport of wrestling. But in, in this kind of wrestling, you'll you'll have storylines for your persona as a wrestler. And if you switch from being a villain to a hero, that's a heel face turn. And mm. if you switch from being a hero to a villain, it's a face heel turn. And professional wrestlers have multiple turns during oh, yeah. the course of their career. And here, Frailing, now that he's gotten in touch with his inner savage, has had a, a face heel turn, and so he like wants to take the 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 Triskelly weapon back and use it to further the British Empire, right? And and so the Doctor has to end up chasing down Rathbone, uh, and they they uh, he ends up hitting you know <laughs> uh, punching Rathbone to take the weapon for him. And he realizes that the airship has to crash to preserve history. And then they also f- they stumble upon the loose vortosaur. And they're all up. The Doctor and Charlie are up in the big gas chamber, that big envelope uh, you know, above the, the gondola that's, that, that is underneath uh, with, that's got the quarters, the living quarters in it. So they're in the gas chamber. And he, he, he notes that the, the ship barely flies on a wing in a prayer. It's not, it's not a very safe thing. It's, it's precarious in, at all times. And he notes that the, Vertisaur rakes the outer hull, 
it would make the ship explode. And uh, and that because the the ship is getting very close to that moment when it's supposed to crash, and Rathbone attacks and cuts open the hull of the ship, and the Doctor throws the Triskelion out, and Rathbone jumps forward and is falls out trying to get it. You know, there's a, there's that that climactic moment. And the doctor, meanwhile, tries to save him. Ends up he ends up hanging outside the ship, and he's about to fall until the Vertisaur comes along, and he and Charlie jump aboard and ride it down. Uh, this is yep. what saves the doctor from the ship. Uh, and and this was the you know the doctor talking about riding Vert- Vertisaurs back at the academy. This is where we pay off that that statement. Uh, so that's and this is what ends up saving the doctor and Charlie from the crash of the R one hundred one. And uh, meanwhile, Frayling and the others on board, who, who now are, they, they're resigned to their fate. They know they're going to crash. There's nothing to save them. So they keep a stiff upper lip and raise a toast of champagne as the airship crashes in a classic uh, Edwardian British gesture. <laughs> After the crash, the, uh, the Vortisaur becomes afraid of Charlie for some reason. And the doctor reasons that's because Charlie was supposed to have died and has now changed the future. And the Vortisaurs are very sensitive to time. But then it suddenly, as the doctor, I think, I'm not sure exactly what it is that changes here, but suddenly the Vortisaur changes its mind and likes Charlie again. Yeah, we have this, and it's not really clear, but the we have the doctor contemplating the situation because he, when the Vortisaur is scared of Charlie and she chases off after it, so, because she likes it, and so she she chases off after it, so the doctor has time by himself to contemplate this. He realizes that there's a paradox now because he knew there were 54 bodies after the R101 disaster. 54 people died. And Tamworth should have been one of them, mm-hmm. but he's not right. and because he left on the saucer. And so Charlie should have been the 54th body. And she's not. She's now alive. Yep. And so the web of time has been disturbed. And Charlie is a living paradox, and that's an intrinsically unstable thing. And it, it I would guess, is part of why the, uh, the Vortisaur has an unstable attitude towards her. Mm-hmm. The Doctor is on the point of contemplating, it's my duty as a time traveler. And remember, Time Lords still exist right now to enforce the laws of time. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's my duty as a time traveler to take you back and put you back on the R101 so you can die there. Mm. And he's he's mulling that dark possibility when the Vortisaur comes back with Charlie writing it and it's like, "Oh, doctor, he's fine now. We're friends. We're friends again." And the doctor thinks, "Maybe you're not a paradox. Maybe there's some other solution." And mm-hmm. so that's why he kind of just goes with it because he does not want to take Charlie back to a certain death. Yep. Right. And cho- so Charlie invites herself aboard the TARDIS to become yes. a companion. <laughs> then she names the Vortisaur Ramsey after the uh, prime minister of the day mm-hmm. because he reminds her of him. And then they ride him back to across France to where the TARDIS fell to, to pick up the TARDIS. There is a reference in the the previous uh, Eighth Doctor Big Finish story that we did, the, the Chimes of Midnight, to the R101, but I, yes. I don't remember what it was. What was the, the connection? Well, the Doctor is, so in Chimes of Midnight, 
Charlie is being mentally manipulated and kind of reverting to her childhood, and it's connected with a maid that she knew, a scullery maid that she knew when she was a child who thinks she never mattered. And it's kind of pulling Charlie mentally back into a world where she didn't matter. And the doctor reminds her of all the things that they've done together in their adventures. So he names, you know, the R101, and he names certain other things that we'll hear in their adventures to convince Charlie that what she has done has mattered. And that helps give the maid the confidence that she mattered too, and it undoes the paradox in that episode. But it doesn't fully undo the paradox of Charlie. That's a longer story arc. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and I, I recall the beginning of that is they were supposed to land in Singapore in 1930, uh, and were and ended up at the 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 mansion in that because of the events of that story. So, mm-hmm. very interesting. Uh, so, any uh, that's where the story ends. Any last notes or comments, Father Corey? Nothing here. Just it was enjoyable to listen to. I actually listened to it as I was doing some of my my moving from one parish to the other. And it was, as I was driving, it was a great, great way to pass the miles. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Jimmy? A few, few lines of dialogue I thought were interesting. I liked how when the doctor is first introduced uh, to Tamworth, he's asked, well, what are you a doctor of? And he says, of most things and some more besides. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I liked how the when the Triskelly engineer prime is asked, where are you from? From further places than you have words for. <laughs> and then the doctor is talking about how the lawgiver has this is the only one of the Triskelly that has free will. So right. he decides between the other factions. And the doctor says, I've known tyranny in my time, but this must be the most benign autocracy I've encountered. And if you think about it, it's like in the Keys of Marinus, with the conscience of Marinus, Mm -hmm. which was designed to make all the free will decisions for a planet so people didn't have to choose between good and bad anymore. Mm. Right, right. Way back in the first doctor's time. I also liked how... Tamworth, even though he was, I think they referred to him early on as being a socialist, but he said he's kind of a funny socialist, which definitely would be true. And he has this kind of mixed background where, yeah, he was a military guy, but he's kind of soured on the use of force. And he talks about how he knew that the Versailles Treaty at the end of World War I would only postpone a worse war. So he sees World War II coming. And I thought that was neat. I also mm-hmm. just uh, uh, linguistically liked an aspect of the Triskelly language, because even though they're speaking in English, or at least we're hearing them in English, an element of their own language, and you alluded to it, Dom, is peeking through. They reverse the order of modifiers from what we have yep. in English. So instead of Lord Tamworth, whenever the Triskelly are referring to him, it is Tamworth Lord. And you hear the same thing with Uncreator Prime and Engineer Prime and so forth. And what that tells us, the fact they're doing that consistently, tells us that their native language is what's known as a head-first language. The head is the element in a string that controls the other elements. So in the phrase, boiling hot water... 
boiling and hot modify water. So mm-hmm. water is the head of that phrase because it's the controlling element. And some languages, like English, are head last. So we say boiling hot water. But other languages are head first languages. So you would say water hot boiling. And even though I don't know that the authors of the script or the author of the script knew the term head first, it's clear that the Triskelli are speaking a head first language because of Tamworth Lord and Uncreator Prime and Engineer Prime. And the linguist in me just loves that. Yeah. Well, you missed the one too, because it, it, it goes by so quick. I had to listen when I listened to the second time, I really caught it. He, they, were, they didn't call him just doctor, they called him Dr. The. Doctor, yeah. Doctor, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Even the definite articles follow. <laughs> yeah, apparently, uh, uh, Picard was was all, also spoke that language because he always it was T Earl Grey. Hot. <laughs> right. Yeah. right. He was, <laughs> Who knew French was 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 that way? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, one of the things I noted in this was they kept I, I don't know if it was an error or something, but they kept changing Freeling's his rank. He was lieutenant colonel or what sometimes lieutenant commander at other times i don't know whether it was just a slip of the tongue that. on the actors but uh, hmm. uh, i thought that was interesting uh yeah that that i, I did like the the doctor the well the sort of modifies doctor doesn't it? Yeah, he's not it just is. a doctor he's it's the doctor the doctor it, it, it's it, it's yeah. the definite article so yeah it's a modifier yep all right great uh so a lot of fun i hope the listeners you all enjoy that as well i like this as a way of breaking things up from watching Doctor Who did listening mm-hmm. once in a while. I enjoyed listening to this sitting on my patio uh, with a nice pipe and uh, uh, a nice drink. And that right. was a nice way to enjoy it, which is a different way than instead of sitting in front of the TV. But uh, we hope you enjoy it. If you, if you like the, the audio plays or, or if you have another opinion, we'd love to hear from you. Let us know what you think of this format and uh, whether you're, you know, there's something you want to See even see more of. I mean, we we hope to do more of these. Uh, those missy ones, I think, would be a lot of fun to do. Oh yeah, they would be. Yeah. And, oh, and I I meant to mention. So the first missy set has been out for a while, and at least at the time of recording, the second missy set has just come out. So there are oh. now eight audio plays available with Michelle Gomez as Missy, and the new set, Volume Two has a story in it. I've begun listening to it already, and it's got a story in it that addresses a question that has been perturbing some some mm. fans, which is the relationship of Sasha Dewan's master to Missy. Because oh. the way Missy finishes in the TV show is she and John Sims' master kill each other, with right. her having no possibility of regenerating. And so that's like the definitive end of the master. And so some people have said, well, that maybe Sasha Dewan, I mean, he couldn't follow her. Maybe Sasha Dewan is earlier in her timeline, since we haven't seen all of the master's incarnations. But that seems implausible, just from a show logic point of view. I think that the MST3K mantra applies here. (laughs) It's, It's just a show I should really just relax. Because the rule is, I mean, this is one of the rules of Doctor Who, no matter how much they tell you that the Master is not only dead, but really most sincerely dead, the Master is not dead. It's like, rule number one is the Doctor lies, rule number two is the Master is never really dead. So (laughs) I don't need an explanation for how did Michelle Gomez survive, how did the Master survive Michelle Gomez's Missy death? 
Uh, they have had other instances where the master, quote unquote, died and then just showed up with no explanation. I'm fine with that. But if you are one of those people who needs an explanation, they provide one in Missy Volume 2 to how, nice. Missy, how Missy survived that death or how the master survived Missy's death. And it's a quite interesting one. So even if you don't, even if you're like me and you don't need an explanation, this is a very interesting one. Cool. All right. I'm looking forward to that. That'll be fun. All right. So uh, that should wrap things up here. We want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Doctor Who, including Debbie L, Anne H, Jim G, Tom H, and Aiden L. Their generous donations at sqpn.com/give make it possible for us to continue. The Secrets of Doctor Who, and all the shows at StarQuest, you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. We'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edits this show for us every week. So, what do you think of Big Finish Storm Warning? Let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com, or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page, or send an email to Who at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the 11th Doctor story, The Hungry Earth. Until then, Father Cory Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Doctor Who. Thank you, Dom. And Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Oh boy, a Chris Chibnall episode next time. <laughs> <laughs> and once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember, Jimmy, because it's Chris Chibnall, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> right. This is going to be fun.